0: You're listening to Rick Kleffel, The Agony Column Podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at Trashotron.comslash agony.
1: He tilts his head back and tips the jar fully upward to empty what remains therein down his throat in one impatient sluicing, careless of how much may go into his mustache and his beard and run from there on downward along the sinews of his neck to soak into his shirt collar. The empty jar he places on the railing like a sacred totem, and he sits before it like a dead man with his hands hanging between his spread knees as if it might soon begin working magic. There is in fact some conjury in the way it reflects and absorbs and refracts such bits of light as come to it. Moonlight, starshine, lamps on silent boats below, The jar captures them one and all and mingles them together with diffuse reflected river light and trades them one for another as if they are all equal and all equally distant. From such materials as these, it creates a localized and mysterious moving galaxy within which this watcher might easily find himself lost and upon which his own deep alcoholic alchemy overlays its own twinings and taints and endless entanglements, spots that might be spiders, and twists that might be snakes and other dark amorphous things lurking indiscernible and beyond differentiation. One of them he fixes his attention upon, a tar black thing that has either lowered itself down upon a filament or emerged whole from some concealed portal. He tilts his head from one side to the other and back again to make it out more clearly, but cannot no matter how he tries, for it seems willfully to resist him concealing itself in the passageways of light and dark within the jar's surface, like some world-destroying entity out adrift among the stars. Once he nearly catches it, he freezes, preparing to pounce, but it slips away again as a lamp lit boat drifts by below, disturbing the arrangement of light and dark. Furious and frustrated, he decides to leap all the same, ill-timed and ill-aimed, and with the back of his hand he strikes the jar, which plunges noiselessly into the water. He is too weary to go to the kitchen and seek another jar or a glass or whatever other container he may find, perhaps even just the comforting jug itself. And so he kneels down upon the boy's empty pallet and falls upon his side there with his back to the wall and drops into a fitful sleep.
0: John Clinch is taught American literature, been creative director for a Philadelphia ad agency, and runs his own ad agency in the Philadelphia suburbs. His first novel is Finn, Welcome to the program, John. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. John, tell us a little bit about this novel. The, the set, Give us the setup. What What was your idea going in with this novel?
1: Uh, I was inspired to write this novel by, of course, Huckleberry Finn, uh, which I read when I was probably about 10 or 12 years old. I remember very clearly, perhaps it's just the way my brain works, but I remember most of the dark stuff about that book. I mean, we we think of it as... Two guys, uh, an adult and a child, heading down the Mississippi, smoking corn cob pipes, dangling their feet in the water. But there's a lot of dark stuff there, and it kind of stuck with me from when I was a kid. Um, in particular, that floating house that comes down the river, Chapter 9, uh, where Huck and Jim find this house floating down the Mississippi River. They enter in through the second-story window, and they find a dead man naked with a bullet in his back lying in this room. And it's easy enough to sort of forget as a child um, that you need to know much more about this because it's uh, you know, the beginning of their adventure. They're on their way down the river. We're with them. We're sort of in the moment with these two, and we see this dead body. It's sort of like another, just another picaresque detail. Uh, but it, it still stuck with me, and when I went back to it later, it got even weirder. So,
0: And your novel, Finn, is the story of...?
1: how that man, Pap Finn, or Finn as he's known in this book, he has no first name, He is certainly not a Pap, um, how Finn shows up dead in that floating house. We learn later on in Huckleberry Finn that the body does indeed belong to him. And uh, my book is about really two things, two sort of acts of becoming on Finn's part. One, the act of becoming dead in that room surrounded by some very peculiar things. And the other, the act of becoming the monster that he is in Twain's book, the, uh, becoming a a racist and a, uh, a, a violent
0: uh, child abuser and an alcoholic. Tell us a little bit about your beginnings as a writer and as a reader. Tell, what did you read as a story that, uh, as a child, that struck you? I, obviously Huckleberry Finn. What else? This is a,
1: that's a good question. One of the things that really struck me, I, I, was, a, I was a sucker for, and I still am, I've always been a sucker for a fancy prose style, and that meant that as a kid, you can probably guess what's coming. Um, you mentioned a fancy prose style, and something you might read as a kid. When I was a kid, I was a big fan of Ray Bradbury. I love that stuff. Something wicked this way comes. I mean, the. I mean, he's he in a lot of ways. You know, Bradbury is sort of over sentimental and very and and overwritten in a lot of ways. And those things appeal to me. They always have. And, uh, I mean, that, that was, I was kind of a science fiction reader when I, was, when I was a kid, a sort of escapism. Did you write as a kid? I did.
0: And what kind of stuff did you write?
1: The stuff little kids write, you know, little, uh, I, I, uh, I remember, you know, just sort of, I, I always actually enjoyed writing school projects because they always sort of gave me a little frame. Maybe this is a telling question on your part. Because um, I enjoyed when I would get an assignment in school and it would be a pretty, pretty rigid thing and finding my way into that assignment in a way that, that paid off in some interesting way for me. Um, it wasn't like I sat around and made up stories like some people some people do, uh, but the idea of working inside a framework like that appealed to me when I
0: was a kid, and I guess it probably still does. Uh, apparently so. It's <laughs> paid off kind of big weird. time for you. <laughs> Tell us a little bit. Did, as a teenager, did you start writing stories, or when did you start actually writing things that you wanted other people to read?
1: I was—I've uh, been an advertising writer for a long time, and uh, English major in college. English major in college. Okay. In fact, the only—I did real well in college. I had—I had straight A's except for one B in creative writing. Uh, <laughs> it's very sad to report that. And you know what? I think I probably deserved it. You know, I—I don't—I don't think what I—I I mean, I—I I, I delivered the appropriate amount of output, but I'm not sure that I—that that the work was all that swell. Um, so who knows? but uh, so so I, I wrote some there uh i've always been been a reader obviously i didn't start to write um short stories until i was really an adult until i was working as an advertising writer i was probably 25 or or so years old 25 or cl- pushing 30 and uh wrote a few stories that sort of that that got that got picked up here and there and i then then I then I had a then then we had a child and uh life got more complicated and kind of set that aside and didn't write again for many years.
0: Tell us a little bit about when you decided to first write a novel. What made you sit down and tackle that? It's a big project.
1: It is a big project. It's like building a house out of raisins, you know. It's 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 just it's the most bizarre thing that I know about. I mean, and, and I don't know about a lot of things, so I'm sure there are a lot of things out there that are, that are crazier than trying to write a novel, but I mean, if you paint a picture, you can kind of rough it out and see it all at once. A novel's hard to see all at once because it's such a linear thing, and it's just one, one word after another. I started, though, with the idea to write a novel. Um, this also has to do with my daughter, oddly enough. My daughter entered high school my wife and I worked for ourselves. I would always start work uh, as the instant my daughter left for f- left for school, and she was leaving for school an hour and a half earlier. And I was spending all my time, this extra hour, working on agency stuff. And I thought I can be more creative than this. I can find a way to use this time better. I've always wanted to write a novel, so I so I I, I sat down and began. This was probably about twelve years ago, and in the process, in the process of uh, getting through those years. Uh, Five novels came out that were not good enough to make it anywhere, and then uh, and then Fin by God.
0: Now, now let me ask you a question: When you finish a novel, and what made you decide it wasn't good enough to go anywhere, and, and who did you who did you run it by? Well, was this you or or the agents?
1: Or? No, n- n- nobody was interested in representing them whatsoever. There were there was just a, a great stone wall of silence out there when I when I noise these books around. And uh, the end of the line was that, uh, frankly, they're probably good enough to be published, but they, uh, they didn't fit a market niche or whatever at the time. They probably still don't. Uh, frankly, I'm just as happy that they never, they never got out there because, really, um, they didn't live up to, uh, to, to the way I feel about this book, and I would kind of hate to be dragging them behind me. So
0: uh, it's probably just as well. When you write a novel that, that you finish and, and you decide it's not good enough, tell me how that feels. <laughs>
1: well, I should be familiar enough with that feeling by now. In, in a sense, I tell myself, uh, as, as, I, as I have done for a long time, that the amount of time that I put in during the day working on that project, uh, whether it pays off in the end in terms of publication or whatever, is at least good time. It's time that I, where, where where I did work that satisfied me, time where I did did work that I that I felt was good work, and uh, in the advertising business you can spend a lot of your time doing stuff that that doesn't seem like you're you know you're you're absolutely exercising your best self, or you're you're exercising your brain to its fullest capacity, so there's always that sense that well at the end of the day, even if nobody wants to
0: read this, it was a good hour. When you start writing a novel, do you outline it? You do. You... You you don't do you know how it's going to end? I know I
1: I the the answer to that is no and yes. I I I do not outline from the at the beginning. Although typically I'll start outlining about halfway through. Um and in Finn it was it was really important to keep uh to keep a a healthy amount of outlining going because the time frames are complicated and it was very important to know what I'd revealed when and where. But typically I know how it's going to end and uh, I know how it begins. And uh, what happens in between is a, is a kind of a vast wasteland. Finn was a great example of that because everybody knows how it ends. I mean, he, the guy ends up dead with a bullet in his back. So the only question is, how do you reach that point?
0: What, what's your schedule like? Do you have a very rigid, disciplined schedule, or do you just write in, in internet cafes with, well, wearing a beret and sipping coffee?
1: <laughs> oh, if you could see me in a beret, you would regret that. Uh, I've always been very disciplined, and during the during the time prior to uh, working on Finn, I would literally work for an hour every morning and produce 250 words. I mean, very simple, one page, one hour, and then I would move on to, my, to, to the next thing, which was advertising work. Uh, Finn changed all that just because the job, the project, the process was uh, much more intense. And uh, when I got started on Finn, suddenly, before I knew it, probably the, the second or third day, instead of an hour each morning. I was starting at 6 in the morning and writing until 9, 30, or 10, and then picking up my agency work at 10 until the end of the day and then starting again in the evening from 6 o'clock until I fell over in bed. So uh, that was discipline in a way because I certainly did it every day, but it was sort of discipline enlarged and enforced by the fact that, I, that this novel
0: kind of, kind of wanted to get out. When you start, when you started writing Finn, how did you handle the revision process? Who did you show this work to? As a first novelist, how do you get a gauge on whether you're doing something right or not? That's a tough
1: one because, and, and everybody's opinion, everybody's different. And I've learned in thirty years in advertising that everybody can do it better than I can. You know, everybody. I've read who it was. Maybe it was Wallace Stegner. Who wrote something a long time ago that suggested that the 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 great human impulse is to put a mark on things and that was one of his pioneering sort of novels but and somebody else said that there's no human impulse stronger than the impulse to change somebody else's copy and you know that's the that I've gotten used to that in advertising so I also know that you know maybe maybe I do have some ideas that are worth exploring whether anybody else thinks I should or not therefore typically my wife is my is my first and last reader i mean she is she she's a very she's a great reader She's a talented writer herself. She reads in a different way from the way that I read. Um, she reads in a more emotionally engaged way than I tend to, and I count on her for that. Um, Finn, she and my daughter read read uh, bits as I went along. They read, the, but but nobody read the whole thing until it was really done, which is kind of rare for me. Uh, typically, I like to like even like to read read it aloud to my wife as I go, which is kind of fun and I'm sort of sort of enforces that, that, uh, r- that oral quality of the language that I try to work toward. But in this case, um, really nobody read, it until, no, read the whole thing until it was really
0: down. I'm wondering if you could talk about getting an agent. How hard was that for you to do that? And Tell us a little bit about the process that you went through to, to get an agent and, and take the next step when you had Finn.
1: Prior to Finn, it was impossible, as we as we have as we have so shamefacedly discussed. Um, with Finn, everything changed. Um, I'm part of an internet writing community, a, a, a very a very good one. In fact, I get a credit in the back of the book in the and the acknowledgments. And uh, who? What community? It's called Backspace, and it's bksp.org. And uh, it's a great group of writers. There are a number of people whose names you know who belong there. Um, and it's, uh, it's just a, just a really interesting crowd. Most of, most of them aren't literary. A lot, a lot of, you know, thriller writers and mystery writers and so on, which is interesting for me too, because it's a kind of exposure to a, a part of the world that I don't usually, I don't usually see. Um, but I had, I had written the first 10 pages of Finn and the fir- the, the opening scenes, the opening two scenes, and I posted them on my website. This is sort of a sort of a plea for help this 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 white flag i was waving and uh i put i put a note on uh on backspace to uh folks saying that i've describing the book in general that it was in the story of huckleberry finn's father that i was doing some experimentation with uh some of the things that twain might have meant to suggest about huck finn and his genesis and uh then I directed people to the website, and I also added a note that said if, you know, because some of these people are pretty high profile, I said if any of you people are well-connected and you know somebody who might be interested in taking a look at this, please pass it along. Two, a, a few interesting things happened. Uh, one is that a number of people said, oh, John, you, don't, you, you shouldn't begin to try to write this book because Mark Tw- you'll, you'll, be, you'll be compared against Mark Twain and found wanting. You, will, you shouldn't approach Huck Finn because Huck Finn is a great American icon. You don't dare screw around with him. Um, there were people who said, on the other hand, people who'd read the first few pages, who said, oh, my God, this is a gorgeous piece of, piece of work, and you certainly need to, need to continue to pursue it. And then the third thing that happened was uh, someone uh, who's represented by the fellow who turned out ultimately to be my agent um, forwarded him, my, the address of my website. He went to the site, read the first five pages, called me up and said, how much do you have? Can you send me more? And we were we were uh, off and away within uh, within a week or so. Bottom line is that I I had only written about 50 pages at that time. And uh, that meant that he was out there while I, I was I was busy finishing the book. He was out there getting the word out, which was good.
0: Talk to me about some of your influences as a as a writer. What books have you read that made you want to write, and made you want to write Finn in particular? Beyond beyond book?
1: beyond the obvious. Beyond the obvious. Beyond the obvious. There are really there are really two sort of secrets to this book that that really represent some of my great influences, writers whom I love. One obviously William Faulkner. Um, I just Came back from a trip down to Oxford, Mississippi, Faulkner's adopted hometown, and it was a, it was a great moment to be there in that courthouse square that I've seen so many times in Faulkner novels. Um, one of the one of the secret touchstones of this book is Faulkner's great Absalom, Absalom. It's a it's a wonderful book. One of the one of one of my very 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 favorites. It has a has a quality about it that I've always been interested in and challenged by, which is the, it's the story of old Thomas Sutpen, who arrives in, in Jefferson, Mississippi, sort of out of the night in secret and ultimately ends up controlling all kinds of things in the town and the in the county. And he's a character that you, you don't see very clearly. You You see him only through other characters. And it always seemed to me that it would be a wonderful thing to try to write a novel where there was a character who was deeply in control of a lot of things but who wasn't on stage very much and whom people responded to and uh, and so that that character shows up here as the judge Finn's father uh, that shadowy figure who's who's always seen if in half light if at all uh, that's one of the secrets of the novel the other secret of the novel is uh, Herman Melville um, I'm a great unashamed admirer of Herman Melville and of of his great short novel, Benito Serino, which, I don't know if you remember it or not, it's a great story about a uh, a Spanish sailor who encounters a boat that is in grave disrepair. Things aren't normal on this boat. And he, and he goes aboard, and he discovers, over a long series of events, that the ship is actually a slave ship that has undergone a revolt. Um, I won't say anything more about that, but uh, that ship is called the uh, San Dominic or the Saint Dominic, and uh, it reappears in Finn as the Santa Domingo, and uh, the the whole of Benito Sereno gets compressed into a little chunk of this book. So that kind of reveals some of my some of my uh, some of my great loves in literature.
0: One of the things that interests me about this book it's two things at once. On one hand, it really is a historical novel, and to a certain extent, a historical mystery. But it's also a literary novel based on a piece of literature, and I want you to talk about the tension between some of the research you might have done to to create, the milieu here seems very, very convincing, really gritty, and you're right there in that, that time period, but also balancing it between the literary creation that it stems from.
1: I was really, really interested in bringing Twain's Mississippi of the 1840s back to life, more more than I was interested in resurrecting the, Missis- the, the, the Mississippi of the eighteen forties, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. I mean it was it was that world of of uh, Illinois and Missouri in the eighteen forties that, as Twain gave it to us, that really interested me. So I, in other words, I didn't spend I didn't worry a lot about my geography. I invented the town on the on the Illinois side of the river where Finn's father lives, uh, completely out of whole cloth. I invented everything about it. I was very true to the geography as of of, uh, of the Missouri side of the river as Twain gave it to us. Um, I spent a lot of time reading about uh, that period of history. Of course, I mean that was those are the days when Missouri was fighting the Civil War, long before and long after the Civil War got fought. So it was a it was a fascinating and and dangerous and bloody time in our history. Spent a lot of time with that, but the The best thing that I can tell you about how that all worked for me is that, I mean, my intent here was to think hard about skin and about black and white and about how we differentiate ourselves from one another and what we're made of. And one of the cool bits of research that I did uh, revealed to me that Alton Penitentiary in Illinois, which is where Finn is imprisoned for a year, was built about the time that this book takes place. And ultimately be, it became a, a, a Civil War prison, but at the time it was a state penitentiary. One of the things that happened there to the prisoners is that their heads would be shaved, pardon me, half of their heads would be shaved while they were in prison so that they would have a little bit more difficult time escaping because it's kind of hard to get away, get away when you look like Mo on one side and, and Curly, I guess, on the other. So I had Finn in this moment in prison, half of his head shaven, and then he got out of prison, which, where, where I sent in the prison barber to shave the remainder of his head. And Finn had been working outdoors in the fields and so on, as prisoners did at that time and place. And lo and behold, I had a character who was already conflicted about race, and his head was white on one side and dark on the other. And it was just too good to be true. But that, it's, it's sort of the way that I think metaphor generates itself in the novel, and it comes from it comes from the you know the, the the real materials and it comes from your intent sort of meeting and that was a great
0: example of it one of the things i really loved about this book was the superstitions that form up that run through it the world that that finn lives in and walks through is not a real world it that as we understand it when we look around we see all the accoutrements of science we see all our technology we see a world that we Pretty much understand was a flat the world that Finn walks through is just this haunted, deranged, bizarre consortium. Yes, it is. Tell us a little bit about how you created that and did you research those <laughs> superstitions?
1: Well, you know one of the great moments or great uh, facts about Huck Finn, the boy, uh, that, that sort of led me down or, or assisted me on my way down the path toward my discovering who I think he is. Um, was his familiarity with slave lore. I mean, he was, a, he was a character in Twain's novel who was intimately familiar with, with every kind of superstition, uh, whether it involved hairballs or curing something with, a, with stump water. I mean, he was, he was there. He knew all this stuff cold. And then, on the other hand, there was his father who, in Twain's novel, as in mine, uh, walks around with a, with, with a cross of nails driven into his left boot heel, which I just love. I mean, that cross of nails appears so many times in this book just because it's, it's a, it's such a great thing. He's, 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 he, he does it so the devil won't follow him. And uh, there's a moment in this book where he gets a new pair of boots and he hasn't yet had a chance to drive in the new nails. And he's, he's with, with, ju- with a judge who's inviting him to his house. And uh, he says he wants to, he, he, he has to uh, drive some nails into his boot heel so the devil won't be able to follow him. And the judge says, oh, the devil is not permitted to cross this threshold. And uh, Finn knows better, but he does not say. And then he walks on in. So uh, he's sort of haunting himself in a way,
0: I think. And also this book has a bit of a feel. It's a mystery. There, You have some kind of like elements of, of genre fiction in here. And I and but you're a very it's a very when you read it it's a very literary novel. But I wonder if if you talk you said, mentioned that you hung out on the web with with uh, thriller writers and mystery mm-hmm. writers. Did genre fiction have some kind of impact on the structure of the novel? Or
1: I think it 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 does in some way. Uh, even though I don't know that I've ever read much of it, uh, and that's kind of strange. But you can only get that by hanging around with other people who write it and picking up on their conversations and listening to them. I I I have become very much aware more aware than I was in the past of the issue of pacing and that that kind of uh you know keep keeping the pages turning um my my process of writing this book was so kind of feverishly intense that I wanted in the process to transfer that kind of intensity over to the readers so it the the, the pacing is much more like like a Probably like a thriller than uh, than the pacing of most literary novels. When you hang out online, by the way, or when you hang out with other with, with people who write in different genres, people who write thrillers and mysteries and so on, accuse people who write literary novels of being boring, of of having no plots, or you know, of not caring about plot and so on. And uh, maybe this was a re, maybe this was a response to that. I, I really don't know, but it, it could be, because uh, this is certainly a book that's. Uh, it's, it's, a high, it's, it's a high literary novel, but it certainly isn't a boring novel, so and it's certainly not a novel in which nothing happens no.
0: <laughs> it, it's one of the darkest novels I think I've read in quite some time. It's oh God bless you, very horrific and constantly disturbing and, and grotesque. I mean this, the stuff that happens in this is is beyond the pale and beyond most of what you read in some of the, the gnarliest horror novels that, that you pick up and it starts right. And from the get-go, it kicks off right away. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about immersing yourself in such a dark figure. How did you, did you, recu- did that like infect you for after you would write about it?
1: It did, and you know the the scary part is that I could write about this guy again this afternoon, no problem. I mean, if you leave me alone in a room, he's right there, I swear. I mean, I, I and part of that is the fact that I love that I love this character. Um, he's a character who has, who is like ninety-eight percent completely worthless. I mean, he, he has, every, everything is wrong with him, except there is that little tiny spark, and there's that tiny spot in him where he is, he, he's drawn to rise up and to be better than his father taught him how to be, and better than his most base impulses make him be, and you know, he, he, he desires to love someone. He, desi- he desires to, to improve himself. The fact that he can't, don't blame that on me. I mean, Mark Twain's the guy who left him dead, but uh, but, but he really can't. So he's he's always going to be that way. And that kind of reminds me of another one of my other favorite characters I should have mentioned before. Um, and this is not in a high literary novel like Melville or Faulkner. Um, Paul Theroux's Mosquito Coast, I think, is a fantastic novel. Anybody out there who hasn't read it needs to go out and buy it and read it. The main character, Allie Fox, played by Harrison Ford in the movie quite well, is... Uh, is a a monster on the order of Finn. Almost. I mean, he's he's not as violent and as base and alcoholic as Finn, but he's every bit as intelligent and dangerous. And uh, it's nice to spend time around somebody like that. Really, as long as you know you don't turn your back.
0: One thing that I that I really loved about this book was the the twisted chronology. It, it's it's the the way the the. You cut the story up. It's almost it, like you're as drunk as Finn, isn't it? Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, did, when you did this, did you uh, write the novel in the order that we read it? Yes, I did. Exactly. Uh, there were a wow. few, a few tiny
1: bits that that we kind of knitted together in the in the final edit. That uh, actually, when the the, the the first pass of the novel was something like a hundred and twenty-five chapters. I mean, it was it was just it was not. Organized exactly the same way, but it, but it was but it was basically if if you had removed all the chapter numbers, it was basically like this. There were some some chunks that uh, that later on I kind of banged together and uh, and hooked up. But by and large, I didn't write it chronologically, and I uh, and I certainly couldn't have. I mean, it, it's, uh, it, it's it's it
0: just doesn't work that way. One of the things uh, that. It's striking in this novel too, in terms of how dark it is, is the way you portray uh, racism in this novel. I, it, it's difficult to read, um, and, and I imagine it must have been difficult to write.
1: It was. I there, there were a few things in my mind as I was working on this relative to the the issue of race, because that mean you know, race is the heart and soul of this. I mean, it's a book about race and about fathers and sons. I mean, that's what it is. And on the subject of race. Clearly, I I was concerned as I was writing it that a couple of things might happen. One that people would see the N word, and the N word is present very much in this novel because, in order to let Finn speak in his time and in his cultural setting, he has to say it, as does everybody else in the book. Almost um, the narrator ho- narrator, however, does not. I mean, the narrator, as you know, is is is. Uh, elevated above all that and, uh, and makes that differentiation. How, at any rate, I was afraid that people would see the N-word and see violence against black people, although there's plenty of violence against white people here. there's Violence there's, Violence is pretty equal opportunity violence. in this yeah. book. There's violence all over the place. But the N-word and violence against black people, and just kind of blank out and think, oh, this is, this is a, a bad book for that reason. Um, I've been really, really pleased as I've, as I've been on this tour... Um, one of my visits was with a, a radio station in in uh, Atlanta with uh, Victoria Jackson, who's the former First lady of Atlanta, a lovely black woman whose response to this book was so much what I had in mind. Um, I've also got i I, I think fully twenty five percent of the emails that i've that I've received from total strangers about it are from people who've identified themselves as black women who've said who've volunteered that information and said, in some cases, the, the the subject matter was almost off-putting, but it's nice to see somebody finally get the ugliness and the truth about this miserable period in our history right and sort of unflinchingly. So there you go. That, that pleases me to no end, as you can imagine.
0: You mentioned fathers and sons, and that's another really... It's a striking aspect of the book, and it's beautifully done because you... Uh, just effortlessly go back and forth between fathers and sons and masters and slaves and freedom and imprisonment. Tell us a little bit about how you constructed this. Did you just discover this as you were like, it it seems like writing this book must have been the equivalent of wading through the scrungiest part of the most polluted river in the entire universe. It was.
1: It was. It it, it wasn't a pleasant trip. And uh, I had to take a bath when it was all over. But Really, I mean, I, I set out to think about those things, and it's re, it's really fairly easy to think about them together—racism and fathers and sons—because when you try to discover what might have been the root of the racism of a guy like Finn, typically we we learn racism at home. I mean, that's that's it's it's a learned response. It's not something that that occurs to people naturally, in most cases, and in most cultures. So when I when I set out to try to figure out what his character was all about, the character that I'd inherited from Mark Twain, the first thing I had to decide was how he came to be the racist that he is. And, of course, learning that behavior is one thing. But then the more I thought about it, the more I thought, well, in life, the thing that gets most of us excited, angry, distressed, on the edge of our seat is a thing that we really think we're sure about, but at the bottom we have a little kernel of uncertainty. That's something that we're that we, we just can't say for sure. A little a little bit of that that uh, that spark, and I thought, well, what if Finn were a racist by training and by learning, but he had an impulse, uh, a romantic impulse toward a black woman? What would that do to him? Would that be enough? To cause him to become the monster ultimately, and to see himself as a monster that uh, that he was, and that was so. Those those things came together for me there: fathers and sons, freedom, and uh, and slavery, uh, black and white.
0: Uh, I, one of the things I really love about this book is the the way that Finn imprisons people.
1: Oh, again and again,
0: again. It, it's really scary. It Tell us a little bit. What what made you do that? It, it seemed it, it, when you first encounter, it, you go, "Wow." how did he think of this it's really creepy
1: well it's uh, again it's, it's sort of that that cultural thing where you know he he comes from a from a family where where dad has all the power and where where, where one guy is in charge of everything and and twain of course gave us the scene in the uh, in the squatter's shack where where finn has huck imprisoned um so that that was sort of a starting point and uh then when, uh, when, when I, I managed to entangle him with with, with Huck's mother, it was only it was only one it, it wasn't very much of a step for him to to, to lock her up too. Um, he's obviously a guy who doesn't have normal relationships with people and uh, and Huck himself I mean I, when, you, when you think about Huck and back to the the, the the thing we talked about earlier about his familiarity with with slave culture and slave lore um, one of the things you think about is, well, where did he learn this? I mean, he's in in the in the household of his father. Clearly, they didn't have slaves, because his father is sleeping with the hogs. So, so there's so Huck must have been around black people somewhere in some intimate relation for a long period of time to be a, to, to be as uh, as familiar with this stuff as he is. So uh, that's sort of led in that direction as well.
0: The 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 Finn family is, is really interesting. And, and I'd like you to talk about the, the way that there's a scene in, in there where um, Finn is in a trial with, with his father. Yes, his father, the judge. His father, the judge. And this really <clears throat> reminded me of Kafka. Uh, it, it was really kind of... It was <laughs> freaky and frightening in the way that Kafka's the trial is freaky yeah. and frightening. Tell us a little bit about that.
1: It's a... Uh... I think you're right. It's funny. There, there is kind of a Kafka-esque quality to it because it shouldn't be happening. Um, Finn has committed a a heinous crime. Well, he's committed yet another heinous crime, and uh, he's been he's been thrown in jail, and his he's uh, he's he's going to be tried uh, for assault. Um, And of course, he's as as the father of the judge, he's uh, he's he speaks to the sheriff, and he's he's interested in finding out who the judge is going to be because he's he's a little bit familiar with all the you know all the all the circuit riding judges and he thinks maybe it's really somebody he knows and ultimately of course it's his father and uh, finn is sharp enough from his having grown up in uh, in the in the family in which he grew up to uh, suggest to his father that maybe it would be sensible for him he doesn't use the word but to recuse himself in this case uh, because he might have other interests involved than 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 pure justice of course which sets his father off into another rage and of course his brother turns out to be his defense attorney and his and uh, and a poor one he is uh because he's more interested in in uh in abetting the judge or at least accommodating him than uh, than in than in defending his own uh, his own flesh and blood fin
0: this novel fits pretty seamlessly with with twain's novel and I'd like you to talk about the process that you went through did you as you put together the scenes that that echo or parallel or are actually in twain's work did you put them together and then go back and check how did you reference this and how did you architect this
1: that was some of them some of them if there was any fun to be had in the writing of this book and it was few and far between that that was some of the fun uh because it was a great chance to sort of look at Huck through a really modern lens as an unreliable narrator, and say that well, maybe maybe Huck isn't telling us the full truth about these scenes because he's telling us everything. So, there are a couple of particular scenes where he appears with the, with his father that I, I really carefully studied those before I before I started to execute my own versions of them, just to see, you know, where where I thought I could expand upon them and where I thought I could could take them, you know, a little farther than Twain had taken them to reveal some things about about my my character, Finn, as opposed to his character, Finn. Um, some of the most fun, though, was a pair of scenes that I can think of, there may have been more, that almost appear in Huckleberry Finn, but actually don't. There's, there's a moment when Pap Finn describes seeing uh, a black professor in town who's walking down the street... And he learns that the man has a silver-headed cane, and he learns that he can vote in the state of Ohio, and he's just enraged by it. And I thought that'd be kind of fun to 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 uh, actually dramatize that scene, so that the the reader can actually see Finn interact with uh, w- with this with this black man and and get a, get a sense for him. There's also a scene where Finn is. Uh, is uh, on trial, he's almost on trial, in, H- in Huck Finn as in Finn, where he's on trial in Huck Finn, and he uh, ends up going home with the judge, the scene, the scene involving the uh, crossing the threshold, um, where he ends up going home with the judge, the judge tries to convert him to some brand of Christianity, and he ends up drunk and falling out the window. Uh, I, I, I took the opportunity to, to, to dramatize that whole thing in a way that, uh, that uh, Mark Twain didn't, because he was more interested in Huck, and I'm more interested in Finn
0: the dialogue in this novel is really interesting. I know it. I know it. (laughs) I know it. (laughs) I know it. It is. I know it. (laughs) Tell us a little bit about writing this dialogue and and that particular phrase, because I think it's pretty iconic.
1: (laughs) turns out that everybody, if you walk the halls at Random House, you'll find people who are answering questions with a terse, I know it. Uh, It's a my 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 I, my objective in writing this one of the objectives in writing this book, or one of the things to be avoided in writing this book, was to try to write dialect that would have been sort of infringing upon Mark Mark Twain's great ventriloquistic specialty. Uh, there was no way that I was going to get involved in that game because I was going to lose, and also there was no way that I was going to be able to do it fairly or accurately or well. So. As contrasted to the narrative voice of this of this novel, which is sort of big and rolling and and uh, King James Bibley and Faulkneresque uh, and musical, M- music is so important to me. Uh, I decided to have the characters speak in very clipped, very abrupt sentences. In fact, probably twenty percent of the dialogue in the book isn't, isn't even complete sentences. Uh, it's sentences that. That end halfway through because I think that's an awful lot of the way we talk, and it's uh, certainly the way these people talk. They get caught; they cut one another off on a routine basis because they know what somebody's going to say. Uh, I know it is Finn's usual response. It means yes. It means okay. It means I'm smarter than you are. It means I already know what you're talking about. <laughs> it means you can have. It means you know nothing that I don't know. It means there are no surprises left in the world for me. It means all those things uh, in 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 one measure or another, and uh, <clears throat> it's sort of it's sort of like uh, there's a viral quality too. I mean, Mary Huck's mother says it a couple times. She she, she picks it up from him, right? And right. a couple a couple other people say it, but Finn, Finn himself says it a lot. It's it's sort of assent and and uh, rebuttal at the same time.
0: You mentioned the musical voice of the n- omniscient narrator. It's really beautiful the way the, the, the prose in this book is just outstanding. It's, it's really Thank gorgeous. You, it's kind of horrific and dark, but it's filled with these kind of dark jewels. And as I was reading it, I, I was thinking and comparing it in my brain to Twain's uh, prose and, and thinking that because this book, the, the prose, is so biblical, I was thinking that Twain is like the Huckleberry Finn is the New Testament, and this is the Old Testament. Wow, that's Full of smiting and bad stuff. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's that's pretty. That that's boy, that's a true statement. I think, I think it is. Um, and that's kind of funny because
0: uh, you mentioned King James. Yeah, did you? You were you yeah. going for the biblical? Oh, I style? was.
1: I was. And I was. And I was. I was going for for that whole biblical sense. And I was going for um, gospel music. I mean, gospel hymns. The great hymns of Fanny Crosby. Uh, from when I was a kid i mean i've 've grown up uh, lo- loving that music and there are there are a million and one little echoes of 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 uh, of those lyrics and that 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 those phrasings here um, I, interesting that idea of the old versus the new testament I think you 're onto something and i 'll see that and raise you one uh, a very dear friend of mine who 's a professor of theology in boston um once said to me as i was describing this book to him and he had he had not read it yet but he said you know he said i think that the new testament can be perceived and this guy is a he's a theologian so trust him he said that the new testament is in many ways a metafiction based on the old testament because it, it was written thereafter it was written in order to make sense of what was there already. It was written in order to make it seem to all of us as if everything predicted there had come true. And, uh, and I think he's right. So this idea of literature that reflects other literature, I think, goes all the way back there.
0: Interesting. Uh, let's talk a little bit about metafiction. It's, it's one of my favorite forms of, of fiction. And and uh, one book that this made me think of quite a bit it, that I read a bazillion years ago what was uh, Grendel? Oh, Grendel uh, by John Gardner. Yeah, King of them all. Yeah. the King of them all. <laughs> I, I mean, this is the tale told from the monster's point of view, isn't it?
1: Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And that's a that's a really good observation too. Um, I've been a I was always a great admirer of Gardner's, as you as you know. His uh, magazine manuscripts picked up a, was was the place where a couple of my stories many years ago got picked up. Um, actually, I always kind of hoped that when I was pushing stories at John Gardner when he finally bought one or two of them, that that would sort of be a way for me to get to get started in a literary career all those many years ago. But as is so often the case with people who try to do me a favor, he rapidly ran his motorcycle into that bridge abutment, and uh, and, <laughs> and my <laughs> career came to a crashing halt. Um, but Grendel, a fantastic book. I mean, and if 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 uh, people think that Finn takes sort of a different uh Look at the materials of Huck. Grendel certainly takes a different look at the materials of Beowulf, and you know, Grendel is a philosopher. He's a he's an existentialist of the highest order, and it's a it's a great fun book and uh, and and an intellectual one too. But there are others. Uh, which others? What uh, Geraldine Brooks's March won the Pulitzer last year. Boy, did that make me feel good. Oh, good. <laughs> I <laughs> know that 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 some that, that the Pulitzer Prize Committee was rewarding somebody who decided to pluck a character out of Little Women and see what his story was about, and write a serious, important book about it. I'm also th- I also think about uh, you know Rosenkrantz and Guildenstern are dead, Tom Stoppard's play. There are there there are sort of two. There there are also the more the more populist or less literary takes. There's uh, Ahab's Wife, which was hugely successful. In the story of uh, right right yeah, yeah, and that well, there's and,
0: an entire a genre called alternate history, and there's yeah. lots of people who will yeah. Uh, Kim Newman's a, a science, science fiction kind of horror writer who plays with um, literary characters. Uh-huh. He's quite good at, at he I'm took, not familiar with her. Uh, him. Him. Uh, <laughs> see, he, see how I'm not familiar with Kim? <laughs> I guess, him? I guess not. <laughs> maybe it's her in an alternate history, huh? Yeah. <laughs> As a first novelist, you're Unlike you're, Kim. <laughs> oh, no, sorry. No. Um, tell us a little bit about the books being published. <clears throat> you you get you get your first black paperback copy here months in advance uh, how does that feel and how do you go about publishing it how do you react to it
1: you know for me really the the, 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 the this tour is is one of the great moments um in which it begins to seem like a real thing um so it's, you're it's not funny.
0: opposed to the literary tour It's fun- no I'm not
1: oh. um I mean, it's, it's, it's tiring, uh, but, you know, I, I, I really enjoy a lot of things about it. I really enjoy the, I'm not one of those guys who, although writing is a very solitary project, uh, I, I really like to get out and communicate and sort of make that connection with, with real-life people, and I think that's important, and uh, I like to read in front of people, and I like to have uh, people ask me questions, and I like to be there in the room with them. So that that that's all good. Maybe it's maybe it's all the years I spent putting myself through college, playing guitar in bars, but uh, you know I'm just sort of sort of accustomed to that being in the room with people and and uh, and being at home. But the yeah the 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 first Black A R C, which doesn't look so hot as I'm staring at it here. That was a that was a great moment, and then uh, when you see the real cover, that's a great moment. And uh, the beauty is that the, the the people, the team of people who who fell in love with this book. And really got behind it, and said we're going. We we think it's really important to get to get this book out in the hands of uh, of the reading public. Uh, That makes you feel so good. It just makes you feel as if you've, you know, you've 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 actually you've actually won one.
0: What's your next novel going to be about?
1: I have no idea. I have a little idea. I've thrown out about five fifths of novels, which makes one novel, I guess, over the last year. a lot of different projects. It's 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 kind of tricky. I mean, I, I don't want to do another Finn. Um, I, I don't think I want to I want to be become the guy who who just does this kind of fiction. Um, because Finn for me wasn't really about that kind of fiction. It was about this character, and it was it was, so so I think it would be kind of artific- It might be kind of artificial for me to to sort of step back into that field and and try to do that again obviously it's going to be something that's going to have some uh, some dark qualities to it i hope it's what i seem to do pretty well and i seem to enjoy it's uh but i but i don't know i mean i have i have some ideas every time i talk about them
0: they seem to vanish in the thin air so tell us a little bit about this darkness what what draws you to that it it it's fair, it seems like it must be pretty uh frightening you know we
1: it's, it, we live in a dark world you know we really do I think that we're in a we're in a, a point of history where darkness is all around us and I think we want to look at it and understand it and uh, we look back at the the, the days there were dark days when Mark Twain wrote wrote Huckleberry Finn I mean we were heading toward a, a great civil war we were no it was 88 we, we just finished with I'm sorry we, the, during the book during the book's time period, we were heading toward it. When he had written it, we were just out of it. But it was uh, it was a dark period then. A friend of mine once asked me when he finished reading this book. People, uh, interesting moment. Some people read this book and they think, oh, it's a it's a dark, black, bloody, disturbing thing. Some people read it and they think, oh, it's a it's a tragedy of a family that's falling apart at the seams. Some people have looked at it and said, it's a it, it's a it's an analysis of the the insanity of America's history of race slavery. All these things are true. A friend of mine, the theologian who uh, raised the question about first the o- new and old testaments, asked me if this was a book about America's sinful position in the on the world scene today, and I couldn't say no. You know, I couldn't say no because books are informed by the by the culture that they grow up in, just like the rest of us.
0: One thing that's omnipresent in this book is alcohol. Oh, yeah. The the character is pretty much drunk the entire time. Yes. Novel. And I'm wondering, did you research how this alcohol was created, and did you try any alcohol that was the equivalent of what's in this book?
1: Actually, I, I kind of researched it after the fact. I mean, I, I've you know, it's moonshine. One's sort of generally aware of that, and... I was actually during the during the I think it was after the book got written, Um, yeah, it was within the last year or so. um, President Bush actually pardoned a moonshiner down in down in Mississippi or Georgia, I think, which was one of one of those great moments. But uh, I thought he was in the process of trying to promote my book. But um, I looked a little bit into the process of making it. There's some funny stuff going on in the world of moonshine these days, which is that it's actually the uh, Centers for Disease Control more than the IRS that's cracking down on moonshiners in America these days because of the lead content in moonshine, so uh, it's become more of a public health problem than a than a than a revenue service problem. Uh, the other thing is we you you can actually get something that's sort of a lot like moonshine. It's called Shine On Georgia Moon. It's thirty. It's corn whiskey, guaranteed less than thirty days old, and it comes in a mason jar. Uh, if you look it up on the internet, there's some interesting stuff about it. I, and you can, you can get it in some liquor stores, but frankly, I've never had it. It's just not my kind of stuff.
0: We've been talking with John Clinch. His first novel is Finn. Thank you for joining me, John. Thank you, Rick. I appreciate being here. You're listening to Rick Kleffel, The Agony Column Podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony.